Hey everybody, welcome to Deserts of Plenty. My name is Ralph. I am a former medical researcher uh, as a lab tech. I was not a principal investigator, to be clear, but I did work in medical research for oh, about a decade and I am uh, an, improv, an improv teacher, uh, which allows me to very carefully uh, observe human beings, how they interact with each other. Anyway, this uh, podcast is about just trying to uh, make my way, our way, in this crazy world. In a world in which we are inundated with calories, but nutrition is very hard to come by. We are awash in experiences, but actual connection, very difficult to get. Um, and we are awash in information, but actually getting knowledge is very tough. You know, this is not my quote, it's Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his book, The Black Swan. And he says, when it comes to reading newspapers, the more you read, the less you know. And that is absolutely true. And I, and I feel like that. It's like, the more you read, the less you know. The more you eat, the less nutrition you have. The more experiences you get, the more empty and lonely you feel. And that's what this podcast is about, is trying to figure all that out and go back to, or I mean, go back to, maybe it never existed. But um, I guess in short, like this kind of life and this trajectory that we are on seems uh, somewhat in non-sustainable. Or if it's sustainable, it at least is taking us, in my opinion, further and further away from the things that truly matter which is the three pillars of our health our mental physical and spiritual and today i want to today i want to talk about a bit and um, you know how one of these you know pillars is crumbling uh by relating a story a really interesting story uh, it's true then you can google it and i encourage you to do that uh because i We'll probably get some of the incidental facts, maybe not completely accurate, but um, I will get most of it accurate. <laughs> uh, I promise. Okay, so um, I when I when I went into science, I, I loved it, and I think one of the things that really drew me to science, other than just how fascinating it was, and I my background was immunology, so I biochemistry immunology. Uh, and I took immunology because I didn't know anything about the immune system. And I realized I don't even know what lymph is. What is lymph? I don't know. I've heard of the lymphatic system, but I have no idea really what it is. And B cells and T cells and macrophages and neutrophils and wow, cytokines. What? What, what are you talking about? So it was a fascinating journey into the human body. Uh, and I loved it. Um, and I might have still be there if there wasn't like a glass ceiling in terms of the amount of the living that one could make as a basic researcher, as a lab technician, which I basically was, ran experiments, but uh, have my name on some scientific papers, but just as like a guy who did some, some work, glorified water carrier, but it was really interesting work. And I'd still, might still be doing it, but there was just an upper limit of what you could make. And it just living in Toronto, it's not sustainable. Um, 
you know, the, I remember when I first went to work there and I had two kids who were in daycare and essentially my, <laughs> when I got paid, paid for daycare. I think it was like literally like $200 left over per month for other things. It was insane. But um, such was life is life. Anyway, what I, the other thing I really loved about science is that it was a search for truth and you could be, you could be anybody. But if you and if you you didn't have to be a scientist, but if what you if you could demonstrate that what you knew or what you had discovered was true, you know, the absolute top person in that field would have to would have to accept it. So it was it was the search for truth and truth would win up. Now, of course, scientists are human beings, so they're you know, they're vulnerable to all the foibles that everyone is uh, you know like uh, ego and narcissism and psychopathy and and rivalries and bitterness and, and 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 all that stuff that exists you know it exists within that world but at the end of the day you know if you could if you know if you could demonstrate that what you had discovered was true everybody had to accept it and this is the story that i want to start with there's um a physician, he's probably retired, I believe he's still alive, uh, Barry Marshall, he's Australian. And uh, just before I, I talk the story, I, I, I still bet that if I asked random people, uh, stomach ulcers, how do you get a stomach ulcer? I, I still bet that most people, and you can ask yourself this, where does stomach, how do people get stomach ulcers? Oh, stress, spicy food, uh, bad diet, uh, right. That's what most people think that, you know, peptic ulcers come from stress, I think is what most people believe, but that's not true. Now, prior to the eighties, uh, and I remember these as a kid too, seeing commercials for ulcers, got an ulcer, you know, uh, take antacids. You want to, you know, it's because the acid had eaten a hole in your stomach because of stress or overeating or spicy food or whatever. And so, um, that's what everybody believed. And there was a whole industry set up to treat ulcers caused by stress and diet. Anyway, this young doctor, I think he's probably in his early thirties at the time, uh, was working in a clinic and, um, he made an interesting discovery. And that is whenever they, you know, would look at patients with these ulcers, they would find the presence of a bacteria, H. pylori bacteria. H. Helicobacter pylori. And um, people basically laugh. They said, oh, there's, there's no way. There's no way a bacteria can exist and live in the stomach. It's too acidic. That's crazy. Anyway, he kept finding them and he developed, he started saying, I think maybe this bacteria is the cause of the ulcer. And he was laughed at and ridiculed because the, the you know, the people at the top of this field said, no, it's stress and it's all these other things. Don't be an idiot. And so he, like a lot of scientists before him, decided to give himself H. pylori and he developed an ulcer. And there he had it and he had proved it. And this upstart guy won a Nobel Prize and he won a Nobel Prize for that very thing. But once he did that and once he had demonstrated it, and he wrote the papers and you write a paper 
Uh, that's another amazing thing about science. You don't keep this stuff to yourself. You tell everybody so that they can go and they can reproduce your experiments. And they found out he was right. And so the field changed. And now if you have a peptic ulcer, you get it treated by taking antibiotics. You don't stop taking, you know, it's not stress. It's not, it's not given over to a bunch of other things. And that's amazing. And that's one of my favorite stories about science. And if anybody asks me a science can, to relay a science story to them, that's the one I tell. And that was about my faith in science, not at the people in it, but the institution of it. You know, like I, I have faith in science, not, you know, that doesn't mean that if someone with an alphabet soup of letters after their name says something, I automatically agree with, with it. Or I take it at face value and go, he's right, she's right. I, but, uh, but I have faith in the process that over time, truth will win out. And it's a bumpy road. And that road, you know, it's not perfect. And one of the flaws, or not flaws, but one of the criticisms you hear a lot about science, like they don't know what they're doing, like with the whole COVID thing, you know, wear a mask now, don't wear a mask. And, and that's one of the things like if, if if we follow the evidence, you know, evidence, things change based on how the evidence plays out. So if you want to be critical, you can say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. They're making it up as they go along. But, you know, to me, that's the strength of science is that it's not dogma. Like it, dogma can be overchained, can be overturned by new information. And that was always the way it was. And but now I, I think. In my opinion, if Barry Marshall came along today, he would be labeled fake news. He would be sidelined. His work would be quashed. He would silently, very quietly, somehow go away. Or, and it would take a lot longer to overturn dogma because I believe of the corrupting influence of money. Um, currently, as I record this, and it's, what is this? This is May, mid-May. There's a conference uh, in Europe right now. Uh, the European Parliament is holding this conference. It's not like it's some wacko fringe thing uh, on the third COVID summit. There's no coverage of it, nothing. And uh, if you were to ask, uh, when it comes to mRNA vaccines, how long, once you're given a vaccine, does that persist in your body? Where does it go in your body? What happens to the cells that express this protein on their surface? What happens to those cells? Uh, now you ask those questions, or if you asked, uh, what about, you know, uh, you get injected. What about the tracking device that the government puts in there, the chip so they can follow you? If you ask those questions, they're all treated the same. You are a conspiracy nut. You are a Trumper. You are on the fringes. You're anti-science, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't matter <laughs> who asks these questions. If you ask either one of those, any of those four questions, you're treated the same. And that is insanity. Because those first three questions are actual legitimate questions that nobody knows the answers to. Um... Meanwhile, the fourth one is straight out of a conspiracy theory um, and has no evidence whatsoever. In fact, there's lots of evidence that there is no tracking device, you know, injected when you get a vaccine. But how safe are mRNA vaccines? 
now seems to be not down to the science and science winning out. It now seems to be who's got the most money. And it really makes me, it hurts me. It makes me very sad that this is where we are, that uh, money and influence now have infiltrated organizations that used to be, that were set up to serve the public interest, to serve truth, and now they really seem to be serving different masters. And that's part of this whole, we're awash in information, but knowledge is very hard to come by. Because it is, it's, it's impossible right now. I think, I, I have not been able to do it, and if you can, please let me know, to answer simple questions like, when you get an mRNA vaccine, how long does it persist in your body? What tissues does it go to? What are the repercussions? You know, is it safe for babies to be imbibing this through their mother's breast milk? Because we know it's in breast milk. What's the long-term prognosis? Nobody knows. And worse, I think for me, or almost as bad, is even asking the question will land you in, you know, you'll get looked at very strangely. I remember in the early parts of the pandemic, there were, um, you know, I think, well, it wasn't put forward by Trump originally, but he echoed it, the idea that the, it was the lab leak theory of COVID, that it came from the Wuhan lab, not from some wet market. And then to say, if anybody repeated that, you were labeled as a Trumper or a Trump apologist or a wacko or some kind of nut. Well, now here we are, whatever, two years later, two years plus later. And I think the lab leak theory is, if not the leading theory, it is at least as credible as any other theory that was put forward. Uh, and that quietly just sort of happened. But because, you know, lies and sensationalism travel much further than the truth, I bet most people aren't even aware of that, you know, because it was so quietly kind of, okay, admitted or sanctioned by various agencies. And, uh, you know, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist in the sense that, you know, I, I don't think there's a large conspiracy set up to try to enrich pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and Moderna. But I think it's people who are doing their best. Uh, but, you know, when you belong to an agency that, you know, gives you a lot of money, you kind of look the other way. There was, uh, I, don't know, I can't remember who this was, but a researcher and he's on the board of Coca-Cola. Uh, and he should know better because sugar is killing all of us uh, slowly. Yeah. Um, and he basically said, we have to thank sugar for, I assume what he meant was, because we can use sugar as calories and that we can cut down on saturated fat, which is the real problem. Uh, although how bad saturated fat really is, or fat in general is, is a podcast discussion for another day. Because the, the history of why we've come to demonize fat and glorify sugar is an interesting one. And it's not a straight line. And it involves many bumps in the road. 
anyway, for another day. Thanks so much for tuning in. I uh, welcome your feedback. Please uh, leave your comments wherever you're reading this or listening to this. Reading this. No one's reading this. Or send me an uh, email. You know, you can send me an email at ralph at socap.ca. That's S-O-C-A-P as in Peter.ca. Thank you so much. I also have another podcast on uh, improvisation called the SoCap Improv Comedy Podcast. Check that one out too. That's really interesting. It's more, it's about how improv can help you in your life, especially if you are not interested in performing. It's just like, what is improv? How can it help me? Well, so many ways, which we'll get into at some point. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye.